0: (laughs) All right, let's do this thing. Before uh, Mark, you're going to read for us? Mark's going to read. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to do chapter 17. This is 17 part 2. Just before Mark reads, I know that you guys don't know all the things that go on behind closed doors. And so I just thought a chance for me, I I can't really honor Jordan because he's not here, but Tyler is. Just what a joy it is to work with both of them. I know that uh, since they were affirmed, it's like COVID just came as a wave behind their affirmation. And really, we've been scrambling and really haven't had much normal time since they were affirmed but just what a joy it's been to work with them, their humility, their wisdom, their, their love for God, their love for you, many, many times. We have completely disagreed on different things and we have had to fight through um, until we found common ground and we've been very, I think we've been faithful to one another to not do anything unless we were all on the same page, and we didn't do anything until we found what that common ground could be for us, and so God's been kind, I think, in helping us stay unified through all the different things that have been happening in the church over the last couple of years, which you guys know it's been a lot of stuff in our culture and in our community and our church, Um, but God's been very kind to us, and just want you guys to hear um, that behind closed doors, Yes, we disagree at times, but I think at the end of the day, we've always come out, right, with decisions that we've felt comfortable with, um, the three of us together. So thank you guys. Thank you for your support. Just encourage those guys as you see them, because they are doing pastoral ministry plus full-time jobs, and that is a huge burden they carry, um, and they do it well and with joy. So grateful, grateful, grateful for all that you've done. And even in this process with the, with the uh, the purchasing of this building. All the help from uh, Jim and from Chip and from everybody else on the task force just has been a huge blessing of working through paperwork and stuff that just honestly either I would have no idea how to do or not have the time or the skills to do. So you guys have all been a huge help. Chip, thank you for what you've done in that process um, and helping us get through it. So that's it. All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 17. Mark Jekyll is going to come read to us. Nah, probably not.
1: All right, Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all men of his house and those born in the house and those bought with the money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Genesis 17, this is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to God.
0: All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the storyline, that the history that you reveal to us in your word of how you gradually reveal more of yourself and more of your saving plan uh, as we work our way from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And so this morning as we as we uh, look into what you're doing in Abram and Sarah's w- lives, I pray that you would help us to see wonderful things about you and how you work and who you are, and and your plan for us, and and may our hearts be filled with faith, and may our hearts be filled with um, just love and astonishment at you for what you do and how you do things. Um, so, Spirit, come, come and do that. Meet us, build our faith, and even even as we seek to understand this story, may our hearts be filled with love and 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 belief in what we read in what we see today, and then may we walk out of here um, as men and women and young people um, filled with a joy that we know you better and we see you more clearly. And so help us, and I pray you'd help me. Lord, help me to communicate clearly and in a way that's faithful to what your word tells us. And may I do it for your fame, for your honor, and for the sake of my friends in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two weeks ago, we looked at the first little section of chapter 17, where God speaks to Abram. You guys remember, Abram had been waiting 13 years for God to speak, so 13 years of silence. And then finally, God shows up, he speaks to Abram, and he tells Abram, I am your God Almighty, that was the main point, if you remember right. And, and he invites Abram to walk with him. And so Abram, we, we decided last time, there was a little thesis statement, was that God was worth waiting for, walking with, and worshiping because he was Abram's God Almighty. And the same is true for us, right? Because God is your God Almighty, he is worth waiting for. He is, even though at times it's hard to wait. And he is worth walking with, and he is certainly worth worshiping, surrendering our lives to. Well, this morning, what I want to do now is go bigger picture over this entire story and talk about how it unfolds and why it unfolds the way that it does. And I'm going to use one word to link how this story unfolds together. So as Mark read, I don't know if any of you noticed, there's one word that is used more than any other word in the story. And does anybody know what the word is? Say it louder. I hear, one, I hear a vote for circumcision. There's actually another word that's used more. Circumcision is used 11 times. Okay, Abraham probably was used more, and that's not the one I was thinking of. Huh? Covenant. Good, covenant. The word covenant is used 13 times um, in this chapter. So I think that's the thread that's, that's what's linking this passage together, just this covenant, this promise that God is going to make with Abram. And so I'm going to use that, and I'm going to use it how the story unfolds. So the story unfolds this way. First, eight verses are about the blessings that God is going to give to Abram. And then in verses 9 to 14, it's going to be about the requirements. What does God require of Abram? And then in 15 to 21, it's going to be the blessings that come to Sarah, and then they're going to cut the covenant. So that's kind of how this if you had to outline the story, this is how it unfolds. So first, we're going to read about God blessing Abram, what that looks like. Then what does Abram have to do in order to get involved in this covenant? And then the blessing comes to Sarah, and then Abram's going to actually enter the covenant with God. All right, so that's kind of how we're going to walk through this. So point number one is this, covenant blessings for Abram. Now, it took me a minute to to see what was happening in these verses because it's a little repetitious but when you read the first eight verses and you start to think about what God is saying, you realize that there are ten or eleven blessings or or uh, encouragements that God gives to Abram. So he says, "Look, here's what this covenant is going to look like." And so some of them he repeats, but I'm going to show you all eleven of them in the first in verses. I'm going to start in verse four, verses four to eight. There's eleven things that God says He's going to do in the covenant to bless Abram. that's a lot. Like I said, someone repeated, but let's let's look at it. So look in your Bible with me. Here's where where we start. Verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and, here's blessing number one, you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. Verse 5, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For, this is blessing two, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you, this is the third blessing, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Blessing number four, I will make you into nations. Blessing five, and kings shall come from you. And here we go, number six, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Four, and I'm going to make this number seven, an everlasting covenant. There's a blessing. Number eight, to be God to you. So he's going to be his God and to your offspring after you. And here's blessing number nine I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan. Verse number 10, for what? An everlasting possession. And blessing 11, I will be their God. So if you put those, like you start stacking them on top of each other, yes, there's overlap, but think about what God is promising Abram. You're going to be the father of nations. You're going to be exceedingly fruitful. Kings are going to come from you. This covenant is going to last forever. I'm going to be your God throughout all this covenant. I'm going to give you the land. So it's just blessing after blessing after blessing. And and God seems to be repeating himself to make sure that Abram, and I think us, catch the details and the vastness and the extent of this blessing that God is making with him. I mean, it really is just an invitation for Abram to be exceedingly fruitful, a multinational, king-producing, eternal, God-partnered contract. (laughs) That's what he's doing with him. And then he says to Abram, and by the way, I'm going to put your name on this covenant. I'm going to change your name and put it on the covenant. So now your name is Abraham, meaning the father of multitudes. So he's going to put his name down on the contract. Now, personally, I find this pretty appealing. Because I think if you think about this in our today terms, this is a pretty big deal. It would be like God saying to me, Matt, I'm going to give you a company called Maka Enterprises, and it's going to be global. It's going to be fruitful. It's going to be eternal. Leaders are going to be produced from it. God himself is going to be my partner, and his fingerprints are going to be all over what I'm doing. It would be as if Jeff Bezos—you guys know him, right? The owner of Amazon. He's supposed to be the richest guy in the whole world or whatever. It would be as if he came to you and said, I'm going to have a new company. And I want to put your name on the company. So we're going to call it your name. And you're going to be exceedingly fruitful. I'm going to back up your business. We're going to raise up leaders that are going to come out of it. It's going to be global, more well-known than Amazon, more well-known than iPhone or iMac or anything like that, more well-known even than McDonald's around the world. And I'm going to set up your family forever. All your relatives, all will be financially secure for the rest of their lives, for centuries and centuries to come. I mean, that's what God is doing with Abram. He is literally blessing him and telling him he's going to give him everything that he could ever want for him and his family for years to come, and his name is all over it. I mean, this is blessing after blessing after blessing. And so, Abram does what any one of us would do. We want to know what do we do? to get on board, right? That's my question. If this is offered to me, what do I have to do? Show me how to sign on the dotted line. How, how do I get involved in this? And so this is exactly what God does next. God tells Abram, after telling him, here's all the blessings. Now he says, okay, Abram, here's how you can enter the covenant. The covenant. Here's the requirements for you for the covenant. And so he begins verse nine. Look there with me. Here it is. Here's God telling Abram how to get in on God's blessing. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here it is. Here's the covenant. Here's what you do, Abram. Here is how you secure these blessings and these promises. Every male among you shall be circumcised. What was that, God? What did you just say? You, you can't tell me that Abram heard that and went, oh, of course, that makes sense. Where did that come from? I mean, this is insane. What, what, is, what is God thinking that this is how the covenant is going to be sealed? I mean, of all the things that God can do to seal the covenant, why is God doing this? And you need to understand that circumcision was something that other people groups were doing. So it wasn't like Abraham didn't know what circumcision was. But I'm telling you that when he heard that, he must have scratched his head. He must have gone, what? Of all the things, God, that you're picking to secure this covenant, you're talking about circumcision. Okay, maybe God means something different by circumcision. Maybe he has a different slant. I mean, he's using the word, but he means it a different way. And so what does God do? God follows up to make sure that Abram doesn't think that God is talking about something different. So he says to him, you shall be, this is verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. (laughs) All right, so now we know what God really means, right? There's no beating around the bush. God... Tells him it's going to be circumcision. And then he's very specific as to what the circumcision is going to be. And then he elaborates on it more and says, everyone who's eight years old shall be circumcised. Every male for your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is, in your, who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So circumcision is God's choice. Now, I, this is just strange to me. If... if If you remove yourself from our Bible traditions and your Sunday school and being brought up and hearing these stories, you read this and you have to be thinking what the heck is going on. Because I'm thinking what the heck's going on. Why did God do it this way? Why didn't God create us with a little extra skin on our earlobe or our knee? Between our fingers? What is God doing? And why? And why this way? Well, I don't think I know all the answers, but I think I have some hunches of what could be going on here. The first is this. I think God did it this way because it couldn't get any more personal. I do. I think God is saying, we're going to be personal, and this is where I'm going to make sure that you know that we are going to be close, man and God. And I really think that's why he went there. I also think there's shedding of blood involved, and there's often shedding of blood involved when God makes covenants. And the third reason I think God chooses this is because this whole chapter is about offspring. And so I think he goes right after the male organ that's going to produce offspring. And so that's why he chooses this. So it's an odd, I think it's odd. I mean, you read it and you laugh. You read it, and you go, why? But I think those are some of the reasons why. The only thing Abram is going to contribute to the covenant is his foreskin. <laughs> that's just crazy to me. Like, why this, God? But that's it, and that's what God says. And it's almost a matter of fact. God says this is how you're going to do it. With every male, that whether they're in your family or not in your family, everyone lives on your household, this is how you get in the covenant. And then God quickly moves on to bless Sarah. So let's look at her blessing. And I'm glad to tell you I have no personal illustrations this week for this story <laughs> like I have past weeks. Praise God, I was... <laughs> preparing the sermon going, no, (laughs) there can't be. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I'm so glad that there was a third to fifth grade class today, because I was thinking "Ah, that this would be a harder one. All right, so he moves on. Verse 15, now we move on to point Number three, the covenant blessings for Sarai. And God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name Sarah. No, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And the word Sarah very clearly means princess. It means Princess. I mean, does it get any more romantic than that, than for God to choose to call her princess? He, he is literally saying, Sarah, you are my princess when my kids were little, my girls, they loved, we had a dress-up box, and they loved to dress up as princes. I do know if you saw some of the Thomas girls come in today. They had little princess dresses on when they came in the room. elsabeth often uh, substitutes in the public school for little kids. She'll go into, like, elementary, second, and third graders. She tells them, my name is Miss Elsa. And as soon as they hear that, they start singing Frozen, and they pursue her all day long with Miss Elsa, Miss Elsa, Miss Elsa. And then she tells them her dad's name is Olaf, and that just sets them off for because it really is his name. Don't strip the innocent, sweet, romantic passion out of God calling her Sarah. I bet when she heard that God changed her name to Princess, I bet she lit up with joy. I think when God said, Sarah, I'm now going to call you Princess, I think she received that as God cherishing her, loving her, honoring her, knowing her, valuing her. I think she embraced all of that as God looked at her and called her his princess. And isn't it right that she would be a princess? Because he says that princes and kings will come out of you. So you're going to have kings. You've got to be a princess. And she's going to produce kings. So she is the princess. That's what it says in verse 16. I will bless her. I love the way God repeats the blessing. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. And he says again, I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of peoples, Shall come from her. So she's gonna have kings. I mean, this is just I can see her heart just swelling with with joy and and affection for God as God reveals this to her. And then of course Abram responds to this wonderfully, doesn't he? <laughs> we find Abram on the ground again, like we did in verse 4, only this time he's not worshiping. This time he's on the ground belly laughing at what God says right? Verse 17, then Abram falls on his face and laughs and says to himself, shall child be born to me, a man who is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah, I like it that he changes her name, she is Sarah now, and he acknowledges that, who is 90 years old, bear a child, and Abram said to God, oh that Ishmael might live before you. So no, he doesn't take it well, but it's interesting, God doesn't correct him, God's going to have a little interaction with Sarah in the next chapter when she laughs so he, he must have understood his laughter. Like, he must be giving Abram a break. After all, he is 100 years old. So I think he understands where he's coming from. And so he laughs. He, he tells God what he would like to see happen. And then what God does in verse 19 is just remind him of the blessing. So God says to him, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant For his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God just reaffirms, this is what I'm going to do. It's going to happen through Sarah, and you're going to have a son, and his name is going to be Isaac. And I love that it says in verse 16 in the Hebrew, maybe your Bible has a note that shows you this, that it actually says that he has already given them Isaac. In God's mind, it's already a done deal. You You already have Isaac as your son. Even though it's going to be a year before you see him, it's already finished, and he's yours. And if I'm Abram and Sarah, and I'm thinking, we just waited 25 years, and now God says it's going to happen next year, they must have been thrilled. Finally, a date. (laughs) Finally, we know there's some closure. There's an end to this, waiting for 25 years. And now they know that their son, God says, is on the way. So don't miss what's happening here. God is just pouring out blessing on Abraham, blessing on Sarah, and blessing on their offspring. And God's doing it in a way where he's exercising, I don't know if you caught this, he's exercising his authority to give names. I mean, this chapter is all about names, really. God begins by telling them who he is. I am God Almighty. Then he says, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. And then he says, Sarah, I'm going to change your name to Sarah. And then he tells them what to call Isaac. So the God is saying, look, I I am the sovereign God in charge of all things, including people and their names, and how I'm going to bless them this is what God does over and over again. He has the authority to give names and to change names. And as I I read this this week, one of my favorite verses is in Revelation chapter three. And I could not help but go there in my heart when I thought about how God changes names and God gives names. I don't know if this is part of your anticipation for being with God for eternity. This is one of my big ones. But here's what it says in Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, not sure what that is, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You see what's happening there? Someday, God, someday Jesus is going to come to you. I, I imagine that sometimes how it goes down in my own head. And he's going to go, psst, come over here. And Jesus is going to pull me in. And he's going to, I don't know, have a pocket, pull out a stone. <laughs> and he's going to oh, go, check this out. And he's going to show it to me. And he's going to say, that's your new name. That's your name. Only you and I know it. It's just for you. And it's just for me. And it's going to be a little, a little secret you and Jesus are going to have. Where he knows that name and you know that name. And no one else knows it. And I think some of that's going on here. I think God is renaming people and giving names, saying, you're mine. You belong to me. I belong to you. I think he's establishing personal touches to their lives, just like he's going to do someday when you and I are in heaven with him forever. Such good news. Such good news. And so there's a the covenant, and now it's Abram's turn For covenant cutting. (laughs) And what a great time this will be for Abraham and Ishmael to have some father-son bonding time together. (laughs) Because at age 13, I'm pretty sure that Isaac was not real excited about this whole covenant thing. But, Abram, I won't read it again, but if you read verses 22 all the way through the end, it's obvious that Abram fulfills the covenant. He, everyone in his household, whether they're blood relatives or people he bought, all of them, every male was circumcised. Abram did it. He, He followed through 100%. And I have to wonder if this is one of the other reasons why God chose circumcision. I wonder if he chose it because it was one and done. One and done. And it really wasn't that much of a sacrifice. It really wasn't that costly. So I think God might have picked it for those reasons. They don't really have any excuse for not obeying, and it isn't that hard, really, for Abram and all the men to obey. God lines it up so you don't have it happen until your kid is eight days old, just to make sure their vitamin K is at the right level so they can clot and not bleed to death. Somehow God knew that. I don't know how. He did. And then everyone goes on their merry way. You only obey once, and it's pretty simple. And I have to think that that's part of the reason God did it. Where in Genesis, God is slowly revealing the way he does things. God could have jumped to the Ten Commandments with Abram. He said, you want to be covered with me? Here's ten things, you better do them. And Abram would go, man, these are hard things. These are heart, heart things. I don't know how to do all these things. But where does God begin? With something simple. Something that's one and done. And Abram immediately does it and is successful at entering... The covenant. And I think God does that. I think God is revealing himself to Abram, to his people, and then later he will reveal himself further with Ten Commandments to Moses and in all the other ways he does is the Old Testament continues to unfold. And I think that tells us something about God's character. God never expects anyone to immediately get it. To immediately obey in every way. To, to be like, oh, now I'm going to be perfect in everything. I think God knows he brings us along slowly in the process of him revealing himself to us and his expectations for us. I think there's a lesson for this in parenting. I think as parents, we need to be aware of the fact that our kids can only handle so much. And so our expectation to be to bring them along in their understanding of God and God's ways and how God works and to move them along slowly as God seems to be doing here as he reveals himself in the Old Testament. I think God just doesn't want to overwhelm Abraham with a long list of things to do. So he said, I'm going to give you one, and it's simple. And once you do it, it's finished. And I think that's why he picks it. And I think that's why God does the same thing over and over again for his people. He wants to slowly and progressively reveal more of himself and his expectations for us over a period of time and not just dump it all down on us all at once. I have a feeling that's probably how God has worked in your life, slowly revealing more of Himself, slowly revealing more of what He expects. So, slowly revealing sin to us. I thought, if God ever revealed to me all of the sins that I commit, if you ever really opened my eyes to see all the things that I do that I'm not supposed to do, all the things I'm supposed to do that I don't do, all the things I do half-heartedly, I'd be crushed. But He doesn't. He brings conviction in one delirious, slowly. And then another little area slowly. And then he encourages and helps you to fight sin and then he gives you something else. Because God's kind and he's slow and he's merciful with us. And I love that. I love that about the fact that we're in Genesis, how God is just slowly, gradually revealing more of himself in Genesis and through Exodus and then all the way through the book of Revelation. So, the covenant is complete and now we look back on this story and go, okay, what do we do with it? What, what, what do we do with this story? And how does it relate to us? Well, thank goodness we have the New Testament commentary telling us how we're supposed to think about what happens in chapter 17. But what I found interesting is that you don't have to go to the New Testament to find out exactly what God is doing, because there's actually things in the Old Testament that tell us what God is doing. And so Deuteronomy says this. I think we're going to put it on the screen. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does he require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you to do today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God... Belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So before we even get to the New Testament, we learn something here about circumcision and God's plan for circumcision. He tells them to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of their heart and be no longer stubborn. So what's the definition of circumcision? Circumcision. Don't be stubborn. It's a circumcision of your heart. In other words, find what in your heart is stubborn and cut it off, cut it out. So even in the Old Testament, God is using the physical act of circumcision to show us something about our hearts. He's using it as a picture of cutting away whatever is at your heart, is stubborn in your heart that doesn't belong. Anything in your heart that makes you not realize and live as if God is the Lord God, that he's the God of gods, that he's great, that he's mighty, that he's awesome, cut it out. So immediately, before we can get to Deuteronomy, God is starting to show them there's something symbolic here that he's doing in their lives. And then move on to Jeremiah, where we see another time where God uses circumcision to make a spiritual point. Here's what it says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Now, this is poetry, so there's couplets here. The first couplet where the quote is, break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. That's what we're to do And that couplet pairs up with circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. In other words, what does it mean to circumcise yourselves to the Lord? Well, it means break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. So again, he's using circumcision, a physical act, to make a spiritual point. Where is your heart hard? Where does it need to be circumcised? Where are there thorns that you're sowing to? cut it away. So he's, he's going after the heart. So notice, in both of these stories, it's us doing something. So if you lived then, you would go, okay, circumcision gets me in the covenant and now God's using that picture of something being cut away to talk to my heart that there's things in my heart that probably need to be cut away. Things aren't pleasing to God that he wants me to circumcise out of my heart. So God is using something physical to make spiritual application. He's taking something that's outward, an outward act, to paint a picture of something inward that he wants to happen in our hearts. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? This is important because now we're going to move into the New Testament and see what the New Testament does with this same idea of circumcision. So Romans chapter 2 says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By who? The Spirit. Okay, so what is similar in this to those two, new, to those two Old Testament passages? What's similar? Heart. God's going after the human heart, and what is he using as an illustration? Circumcision. Okay, so that's what's the same to the passage in Deuteronomy and the passage in Jeremiah. What's different? Now it's by the Spirit. Before they had to do it. It was you cut away what doesn't belong in your heart. Now in the New Testament, it's the same idea. It's about your heart. Circumcision is not about outward. It's about inward. But who does the work now? Now? Spirit does the work. The Spirit does the cutting. The Spirit's going to take away what's ugly and rotten and miserable in your heart, and He's going to cut it away for you. It's God who's going to do the work. So you know, now we make a leap. So again, God is revealing slowly what His plan is for circumcision. It's, it starts as a way of getting in the covenant. Then it transforms into an outward act that's supposed to show about your hearts and how you cut away your heart. Then you get into the New Testament. Now it's still about your heart, but now the Spirit's doing the cutting. Now we have one more passage, and this is in Colossians chapter 2. And here's where we make the next final connection. Uh, this is really cool, because this is where we see what is the New Testament connection to circumcision. In other words, what's the equivalent of circumcision in the Old Testament to the New Testament? What happens here? And so this verse in Colossians is one that paints a very clear picture of what replaces circumcision in the New Testament. And you need to know that these are the verses that many Reformed churches use to support infant baptism. This is, this is their verse. This is the only verse, really, that gives them their grounds for it. So what I want to do is look at it, and I want to show you how they make that connection and show you why I 1,000% disagree. And I think you're going to see why, too. So we're going to walk through this together slowly. It says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I right, Keep that up there for a little while because we're going to pick this apart. And this is where you've got to put your little thinking caps on because there's a lot of thinking that has to happen here. So be thinking. You thinking? Okay, here we go. We've got to unpack this to see what is going on with circumcision in this verse and what does it mean. So it begins with this. In him... Who's the hymn? Jesus is always the right answer when you're in church. <laughs> in Jesus, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's using circumcision. Our minds go back to Genesis 17, right? But he's saying this circumcision doesn't involve Hands. No hands are involved in this circumcision. Okay? So this is something spiritual, not something physical. That's what he's saying. This is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. By putting off the body of the flesh. Now, this is tricky because when you hear the word flesh, you think hands, right? You think flesh. But Paul's not using the word flesh there that way. Paul is using the word flesh to talk about your sinful nature. Your flesh is the sinful stuff in your heart that doesn't love God and doesn't want God anymore. He's talking about that. And and just to make sure you see that, if you go down to the end, he says it again in verse 13, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So they were dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So it's death. Your flesh is the dead part of you that's in you. Okay, so let's go back up to the beginning. Make sure we're tracking. In him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's not talking about anything physical now. He's talking about spiritual. By the putting off of your flesh, the dead person in you, the the person that was sin-dominated. And how does that happen? How, how How does that get circumcised? By the circumcision of Christ. So similar to Romans, only now it's Jesus doing it. Jesus is coming in, and he's saying, I see your flesh, I see your heart, I see your sinful I see that part of you that just wants sin and not me, and Christ comes and circumcises that out of your heart. He cuts that out of your heart so that it's gone. That's how Jesus does it. That's his action. He cuts it away for us. And now Paul is going to link that to baptism in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. What is that referring to? having been buried with him in baptism. He's referring back to what he just said, which is what? Circumcision, but not circumcision like in the Old Testament. What kind of circumcision? Christ circumcision. Spiritual circumcision. So baptism then, the word circumcise is followed up quickly by baptism. And so we think, oh, those are, those are equivalent to one another. But that's not the link. Baptism here is not linked to Old Testament physical foreskin circumcision. You see that? Paul is linking baptism to the spiritual act where Christ circumcises your old sinful body of flesh made without hands. You see the argument. This is huge because you decide whether or not this means I baptize my infant or I don't, based on how you interpret this passage. And, and Paul is going to now repeat the connection between our sinful, uncircumcised flesh and how Christ makes us alive. And so he ends in verse 13 And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and then God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So, so track with this your heart was uncircumcised. It was dead. There was death all around it. Fleshy, sinful death. It was surrounded by death. Then Christ comes, circumcises off the death. He cuts it away. And then, by his resurrection, it says that he brings your heart to new life. He gives you a life again. He he gives you life. So in his death, he circumcises the death off your heart, and then in his resurrection, he gives you new life. That's what he's doing. And this verse so the equivalent then the the new testament equivalent of old testament circumcision is not baptism the new testament equivalent of old testament circumcision circumcision is christ cutting away your sinful nature does that make sense people want to know like circumcision in the old testament well what does that translate to in the new testament It doesn't translate to baptism, according to these verses. It translates to, now Christ circumcises the death out of my heart. That's the equivalent of Old Testament circumcision. No longer is it a fleshly thing done by hands, it's a spiritual thing done by God. It's done by Jesus, it's done by the Spirit, where it cuts that out of our hearts. I think to use this passage to support infant baptism, you have to ignore the phrase, made without hands, Because that's what makes this spiritual and not a physical thing. And I think you have to ignore ignore that Old Testament circumcision has been replaced by Jesus circumcising your heart. Does that make sense? These are important things for you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And this is exactly what we read back in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah. It's always been about the heart. So I think God always wanted foreskin circumcision to be a picture of heart circumcision and never a connection to baptism, if that makes sense. And it really wouldn't make sense anyway, would it? Think about, let's just take the Lord's Supper as an example. You've got the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate that in just a little bit. Where we take bread and we take wine. And what do those picture for us? Jesus' Body and blood, which replaces what? Old Testament sacrifices. Does that make sense? So when I celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm not looking, I'm not jumping back all the way to animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. No, Jesus fulfilled that. Does that make sense? So the same thing with circumcision. If that was a physical picture of something, Jesus already fulfilled that when he circumcised the death out of my heart. So I'm not going to add another symbol like baptism to circumcision because Jesus completed it. He finished it. It's already done. So it wouldn't make any sense, I think, for an Old Testament physical symbolic act to be replaced in the New Testament by another symbolic act. You're not going to take the symbolic act of baptism and use that to replace the symbolic act of circumcision. And so it makes sense then as we think about what Jesus does in his death and in his resurrection. The Lord's Supper, especially, is symbolic because it reminds us of Jesus' act that he replaces the Old Testament sacrifice of animals being sacrificed on his behalf, on our behalf. So there's the argument. That's how it goes down. So this morning, as we look at this story and we talk about circumcision, we need to think, okay, the connection then is this. Old Testament circumcision has now been replaced by Jesus circumcising my heart and then I get baptized as a picture of what Jesus did on the inside. That's where baptism connects to the whole thing. So the question for us then is, has Christ circumcised the dead man out of your heart? And has he given you new life? That's the application. Are you a new person? Have you been raised from the dead? Have you let Christ, through his death, cut all the sin from your heart, all the bondage of sin, and set you free and given you a new heart? And then, have you been baptized as a picture of your heart being circumcised? If you're going down into the grave and your heart being killed, you dying with Christ, and then being raised to newness of life as a picture of what Jesus did when he circumcised your heart. So those are the applications, really, for today. I don't even want to go back to Deuteronomy, to be honest, or to Jeremiah, because Jesus already did the work. The point is celebrate that Jesus cuts all that out of you, and you want it cut out of you because sin sucks. It trips you up. It discourages you. It lies to you. It brings death and not life, and you want it cut out, and Jesus comes along, and he does it. He cuts it out so that you can be free. And I think that's where the story of chapter 17 in Genesis lands in the New Testament. Has Jesus circumcised your heart? And have you been baptized to celebrate that circumcision? So those are two questions for you to consider, even this week. What does it look like to live as a New Testament disciple of Jesus whose heart's been circumcised? And have you been baptized to celebrate it? Well, we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, And we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a way of reminding ourselves of the new covenant that we have in Christ. Because of Christ, your heart has been circumcised. And so we're going to celebrate the cup. We're going to celebrate the bread, what Jesus has done for us, as a way of reminding ourselves that Jesus has done it all. So we're going to stand. We're going to sing together. Um, As we do, you can go ahead and, and come up to the front. There's bread and there's juice or wine and then in the back, there's gluten-free. So if you have need gluten-free stuff, you can go to the back there. Otherwise, you can come up front on either side, take the bread, take the wine or juice and bring it back to your seat. We'll continue singing and then we'll all take the bread and the juice together. So let's stand, church, and let's enjoy the Lord's Supper together.